Welcome to the Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, Montana and New Mexico, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran, the Coalition's Managing Editor, and today we'll hear how the recent annular solar eclipse excited humans and quietened birds. Birds typically get very quiet during an eclipse, especially one that covers most of the sun. Then we'll hear about wild spaces in the Rocky Mountain West. I want people to see it as a celebration of the wilderness. After that, we pay a visit to Maple Grove Hot Springs on the Idaho-Utah border. It's been a significant site for humans in the area for thousands of years. Our people would go there and use the waters there to heal themselves and to uh, rejuvenate and catch a breath. From Rocky Mountain Community Radio, it's the Regional Roundup. Parts of the Rocky Mountain West were in the path of the recent annular eclipse. It was known as the Ring of Fire, as a ring of light was visible as the moon passed in front of the sun. I went to see it in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and KSJD's Chris Clements saw it at Mesa Verde National Park in southwestern Colorado, near the Four Corners. Hey, Chris. Hey, Maeve. Tell us where you were, what you saw, and what you heard. It was a pretty incredible experience. I, I was at the, the parking lot for Spruce Tree House, which is a cliff dwelling in Mesa Verde National Park, close to the path of totality um, for this, this um, annular eclipse. And... You know, at this viewing party, we also had NASA scientists and park rangers who were kind of just on hand to answer questions and and do demonstrations of you know various I don't know aspects of the solar system. So it was great. The right distance from the sun relative to just so you know the four and a quarter inch diameter. So who did you get to talk to when you were there? I talked to a, a, a NASA scientist at the NASA's Goddard uh, Space Flight Center named Tim Livengood, and he he's a researcher, and he was uh, you know he had folks take different you know objects to show and kind of demonstrate the um, how just how far the moon is from us here on Earth, and so it was really a great interactive moment with the audience, I think. How often does an eclipse happen on any particular spot on the surface of the Earth? And it works out to be something like once every four centuries that any particular location. Now, there are a few locations that are particularly lucky over the last decade. Uh, Carbondale, Illinois, happened to be at the crossover point between the path for the 2017 eclipse and next year's eclipse on April 8 in 2024. Um, San Antonio and other places is around the crossover point for today's eclipse and for next April's eclipse. You know, it's, it's gonna cross over someplace. So yeah, they got it once every you know, year or so, or five years. But you know, a, apart from that, randomly speaking, yeah, once every four centuries. And I know there were lots of people who went to Mesa Verde because it's a beautiful place, but it's also one of the best places in Colorado that people could see it. And, there were people there, this wasn't their first eclipse, and for others, it was their first eclipse. We're really excited. We drove a long way to get here, and um, we camped last night. And uh, for the, this kid's age group, it's just a perfect experience to get outside and to see a really cool phenomenon in the, in the solar system. So Yeah, and where are you coming from? Uh, we, we're from Grand Junction, Colorado. Oh, gotcha. yeah. 
how are you feeling about being here, like watching the eclipse and all that? Well, I'm excited to be here because I haven't seen an eclipse in a while. Have you ever seen one? Yes, I okay. have, but I was like five or six. What was the atmosphere like? So it was really great, I mean, especially right up until the moment of maximum annularity. Uh, people kind of quieted down and the sky dimmed and this, the, the moon you know, began to obscure the sun fully. And it was at that moment, I think, that it was the most incredible, getting to see that ring of fire, you know, um, that's what makes this eclipse special. So Maeve, what was uh, Santa Fe like? Santa Fe was incredible because this was right in the path. And so we went to view it at the Randall Davy Audubon Centre and Sanctuary. So this was this beautiful bird sanctuary just outside of Santa Fe. And what was so interesting about that was you could experience the eclipse through the sounds of the birds. So, as you would imagine, before the eclipse, it was really loud. There was all kinds of birds, particularly crows. There were hummingbirds flying all around the place. And then they started to get quieter and quieter. So I talked to a volunteer at the bird sanctuary who explained this is actually what you should expect from birds during an eclipse. My name is Ken Bales and I volunteer here at the Randall Davy Audubon Center uh, where every Saturday morning we have a guided bird walk that is just now getting over in time for everybody to be able to watch the eclipse and see what the birds and animals and everything else uh, does when they react to the, what the sun's going to do. So what typically is the reaction of birds to an eclipse. Yeah, birds typically get very quiet during an eclipse, especially one that covers most of the sun. You may have noticed if you've been listening to bird calls that they're already getting a little quieter because I'm not hearing nearly the uh, calls that I heard even a few minutes ago. And so while it's still bright light here and the sun is not even half covered, uh, the birds are already reacting to it. Overall, it was a really incredible experience and it was my first eclipse of any nature. So I really enjoyed it. What about you, Chris? It was my first time viewing an eclipse as well. Um, I, I don't know where I was in 2017, but I, I guess I wasn't, you know, looking up at the sky because this is my this was my first time. And I think it was a really special moment, you know, that everyone in this, this national park with these these national scientists can can, you know, come together and, and cast their gazes upward at the at the moon and the sun. It, it was really special. Well, Chris Clements of KSJD, thanks for sharing your experience with us. Thank you so much, Maeve. You can see photos from Mesa Verde and the annular eclipse watching party at ksjd.org. John Waterman has been exploring and advocating for wild spaces throughout the US for several decades. The former wilderness guide and National Park Service ranger, who lives in Carbondale, writes about his favourite places in his new book, Atlas of Wild America which has just been published through National Geographic. I want people to see it as a celebration of the wilderness and an inspiration not only to get out there and explore, moreover, to take care of it. Um, and I think that by its nature, wilderness draws people who are conservationists and preservationists who are inclined to take care of the place. Although I put the seven principles of leave no trace in the opening pages of the book, I trust that people who are interested in wilderness will be taking care of it and will leave no trace. 
So again, ultimately, I see it as a celebration of wilderness, uh, of what we have that, that is so amazing. When we talk about wilderness areas, people might just think this is just a grandiose way to describe open spaces. And yet there are legal definitions and federal protections that go along with specific wilderness designations. What are those and, and what does it mean for a place legally to be designated as wilderness? Well, most importantly, it it uh, cannot uh, there can't be any mineral exploitation that goes on in wilderness areas. There are exceptions, places that were grandfathered in, for instance, with mining claims. But on the whole, and particularly for the purposes of the book, the places that I chose have a, a, a minimum of, of that sort of thing going on. There are no roads, or if there are roads, they're they're very they're primitive roads only. No mechanical vehicles. Uh, no vehicles whatsoever, motorized uh, use is allowed in wilderness. Um, and, you know, by the, the language of the Wilderness Acts, these are places that are untrammeled by man. So uh, we, we are leaving them uh, and maintaining them in their pristine state. I think it's interesting that even the trail maintenance in wilderness areas by the terms of the Wilderness Act, whether it's managed by the Forest Service or the BLM or the Fish and Wildlife Service or the parks, um, they uh, only do a certain amount of trail maintenance and the trails can't be um, made uh, uh, too wide. Uh, they can't use helicopters or chainsaws, for instance, to do, to do bridge work. Uh, they have to use natural materials and the surrounding timber to build a bridge if, if one is needed. In many instances, they take out bridges so that we may experience these places in, uh, at their most pristine. Another part of the, the language of the Wilderness Act is, is that where man shall only be a, a, a visitor, which is great. And I think that for our purposes and the need to disconnect and then connect with wilderness, it's, it's just fine. We're drawn to the isolation of wilderness. But really, um, wilderness before the colonial days our continent was uh, inhabited by as many as 60 million uh, indigenous peoples. So wilderness doesn't necessarily not have to have people. And in Alaska, there's great exception in the wilderness areas because there's a, a great deal of subsistence use in legislated wilderness areas. So again, it's a slippery concept, uh, wilderness, um, but there are some basic tenets of it, and, th and those are some of them. So I'd like to talk about some of the spaces that you've gone to, these wild spaces in the Rocky Mountain region. And I'd like to talk, first of all, about Sangre de Cristo Wilderness. Many folks who are listening now will be very familiar with that. Other people will never have visited. So why was this an area out of all the places in the Rocky Mountains that you wanted to talk about? Well, it does have, I developed a criteria that for how to actually determine what areas I should include in the book. And um, many of these places I had been to, so there was kind of a personal bias, including places like the Sangre de Cristo wilderness. But for one, it's a wilderness area. It is legislated wilderness, much of it. Um, and it is surrounded by other areas that are uh, wonderful and pristine, such as uh, Great Sand Dunes National Park. So it had all those aspects you know, geographically, but wilderness is a slippery concept. You know, it's not really necessarily a, a 
a defined construct. And just because it's legislated as such doesn't mean that it's wild. But I felt that in my time, four or five trips in the Sangres, I was so enchanted by my time there. Uh, many of my experiences, like those of your listeners, undoubtedly, are experiences where I have uh, I go for the challenge. I go to climb a uh, uh, Cresto Needle or uh, uh, to traverse uh, the peaks. Um, but I also go, uh, in the end, it's not just getting to the top of these peaks or running a river or traversing a range that, that means a lot to me. There are these other inherent values of wilderness, the, the opportunity to connect, uh, to find peace. And uh, the Sangres uh, just happen to be one of those places. For somebody like yourself, John, you live in a beautiful part of the world in Carbondale and the Roaring Fork Valley on the western slope of Colorado. Do you still experience awe when you go into these wild spaces? What happens to you on a personal level when you go into some of these areas that you've written about? Well, that's a great question. I, I Yes, and I do experience awe on a routine basis. Uh, I routinely go into Bureau of Land Management land directly behind my house. Um, and what happens to me, even though I'm disconnecting, if you will, from my iPhone and the computer, I am reconnecting with the wilds. And I believe that when I go into the wilderness, as happens to many people, that we engage our senses in a way that we don't have the opportunity to do uh, in our uh, busy worlds of careers and connection. Uh, in fact, that we have the opportunity to uh, develop our sixth sense and our intuition in a way that we can't uh, in uh, the, the rest of our lives. So, um, and of course, our, our legislators agreed. They created the Wilderness Act in 1964 uh, for these very reasons, um, not just for, for the wildlife or the, for the resource itself, but for us, for human beings as a spiritual connection place. Well, how do you think we're doing when it comes to protecting, preserving, conserving our wild spaces? And let's talk particularly about here in the Rocky Mountain West. Well, there's always room for more. Um, um, you know, across the country, starting on the big scale, and then I'll zoom in. Uh, you know, we have more than 800 legislated wilderness areas. And those aren't the only places that are wild or the only places that I've included in my book. I've included state parks and, and other areas. Um, but there's always room for more. In, in our region of the West, you know, I've deliberately included and written and photographed places such as Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, managed by the Bureau of Land uh, Management. And I included them not only because it's such a beautiful place and it's not technically legislated wilderness, but it has wilderness study units in it. Uh, uh, ditto for uh, Upper Missouri River Breaks National Monument in Montana, that both of these places, as many BLM land areas, have wilderness study units. And those are set aside uh so that we can study them so that they can be designated wilderness. So there's always room for more. In the valley that I live in, <clears throat> for 
a long time, there was a, a bill pending to create what was known as the Hidden Gems Wilderness, which ultimately has failed um, for, for lots of reasons. And I was sad to see it go away because in our matting world, there's uh, we need these places. We need them not only for ourselves, for our own well-being, for uh, spiritual reasons, but the wildlife needs it. The biosphere needs it. The, and then, it, you know, from such pragmatic reasons as it, places with more trees become carbon sinks that, that help mitigate uh, the effects of greenhouse gases in these times of climate change. So wilderness is, is an invaluable resource to us. John Borderman lives in Carbondale, Colorado. His latest book is Atlas of Wild America, and it's just been published by National Geographic. You're listening to the Regional Roundup from Rocky Mountain Community Radio. There are numerous hot springs all throughout the Rocky Mountain region, attracting people for generations who wish to soak in their healing waters. Just north of the Utah-Idaho border, 30 minutes from Preston, Idaho, there is one such site. It's older than any human inhabitants of the area, past or present. Maple Grove Hot Springs has been a significant site for humans in the area for thousands of years. Now it's a healing and retreat centre that looks to heal, relax and connect those who come to its pools. KRCL's Connor Estes went to the hot springs to hear about its impact as part of their series, Ways of Water. There's just something about water that's coming directly out of the earth into a pool and sitting there in the body uh, that I think creates a connection. Um, And that warmth, I think, just eases the body and releases tension. We're mostly water, and so I feel like I'm you know, really getting, you know, fortifying myself, my physical self, and my energy field. The pools themselves bring like a centeredness and kind of bring us back down to a space of relaxed, chill, um, zen. They all kind of have a magical allure, which is the sheer curiosity of how is it that an experience that is so comfortable relaxing, warm, just naturally occurring. And there's almost this feeling of luck. On this episode of Ways of Water, come with me to one of the many wide bends of the Bear River. Just north of the Utah-Idaho border, 30 minutes from Preston, a site sits that is older than any human inhabitants, past or present. Here, the earth works deep below the surface. Water heated to 180 degrees Fahrenheit emerges and follows a path into four pools where it then flows into the cool Bear River with an eventual meetup with the Great Salt Lake. This is Maple Grove Hot Springs. Darren Perry, former chairman of the Shoshone Nation, explains the location's long history with humans. I wrote a book in 2018 called The Bear River Massacre of Shoshone History, and it uh, talks about the massacre of my people in 1863 by the U.S. Army that was stationed here at Camp Douglas in Salt Lake largest massacre of Native Americans in the history of the country. The significance and why it's related to what we're talking about today is there's warmer places than the Cache Valley to winter, but the Shoshones chose that spot along the Bear River for one reason. It was because of the many hot springs that are along the Bear River. 
And so uh, from that point on, just north of Preston, 20 miles up the Bear River up to where Maple Grove is today, there's hot springs that dot the landscape and coincide with the river. And so while that place was important for my people to winter, Maple Grove was introduced to me as a young boy by my grandmother who said our people would go there and use the waters there to heal themselves and to uh, rejuvenate and catch a breath. So Maple Grove, I, over the years, I just knew it as a hot spring. Then somebody came in and bought it and uh, eventually it was run down and but we still went in and used the hot spring. And then recent owners in the last few years have really done a wonderful job of uh, highlighting how beautiful the area is with the natural elements that they've used to uh, reconstruct and, and make good for people to come and enjoy themselves. And, but for the same reason, to catch your breath, heal, rejuvenate yourself. Uh, spend time with family and friends and uh, get better acquainted with nature. Here's the current owner, Jordan Menzo. It became really clear to me that no matter what happens with that place, what a loss it would be if it was closed up and turned into a cabin, which it was about to be. Or what a loss if it was just fenced up altogether. Or what a loss if it became a, a loud, noisy, unpredictable commercial setting that overwhelmed its, its natural beauty. And so I just kind of felt a panic of not wanting one of these few kind of, in a way, undiscovered natural resources to go a disconnected direction. And that just started a curious conversation with the owner and fast forward four years later, an insane amount of blood, sweat, and tears. Um, we're taking our best stab at really trying to strike a balance, which is to have the human footprint get out of the way as much as possible to the natural environment, but to do that in a way that lets as many people as possible come and experience, yes, the sensory uh, magic of sitting in the pools, but really experience what we consider like physical and social and psychological safety. Being enveloped in this just warm water that uh, has minerals in it and certain things that the Shoshones believed had healed their people for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So whenever I get in, I remember the stories that my grandmother told me about how these waters are used to heal, not only from physical elements, but from mental elements. Another layer that I didn't anticipate that I think is surreal about bathing culture. Um, as I've started to explore mineral bathing culture abroad, you'll find so many countries and cultures who have very long traditions in the Middle East, in Asia, in Japan, in Europe. And bathing in natural mineral pools has always been viewed first and foremost as a health and wellness regimen. And unfortunately over time in the US, that has shifted to 
mineral waters might as well be another way to make a pool for recreation and entertainment. Whereas in, in other cultures and traditions, they very much preserve the ritual and tradition of bathing culture and your wellness regimen. And so we are really rooted in walking that balance of, you know, what I call a, a mountain west meets east approach to hot springs. When people get out, they feel so much better. We've had people come in here like semi-grumpy, you know, about different things. You know, life is challenging sometimes and getting in here on certain roads are closed and whatever's going on in their lives that are causing them stress. And they come in and we greet them with love and they sit in the pool for a minute and after 30 minutes or so, they're coming in with smiles and just joy. And I think that that is the, the benefit of the pools. I, I think it fosters deeper conversations. It breaks down all of those barriers that it might take you five to 10 times meeting a person to get to that same point in a regular setting. But I think you get there immediately when you get in this shared space because I've always said water is life. We can't live without it. The Shoshone people knew where it was all the time because uh, you could go a few days without food, but you can't go a few days without water. And so water is life, figuratively, and, and it, it, in every way. And so the fact that that water is there, maybe not to drink, but to heal the soul, I think it breaks down barriers to just really foster positive conversations going forward. And one thing about Jordan at Maple Grove, if you've never been, he is the best at bringing that type of thing out. It's an invitation we give people when they come, which is to say the following, you know, whether you knew it or not, you were about to step into a really high potential communal experience that could change the way someone thinks about their entire life. And we invite you to consider how can you accelerate, enhance, and contribute to the health and benefit of someone's experience who happens to be in that pool instead of how might you rob that small, intimate social environment. And what we see in a pool is that when people are invited to do that, it's just magic. And that has implications in our neighborhoods, our communities, our schools, our workplaces. Hot springs so naturally orient people to think that way, but it's a lesson that has changed entirely the way I move about society, to be honest. There's something about going back to our nature, going back to our original roots. I mean, we all came from water, didn't we? Out of our mother's womb, warm water. And that was the last thing we knew before when we were introduced into this world. And I think it's, it, it's not lost on me that we gain this certain amount of comfort by going back into the, the womb of the water, the earth's water, because that, that water comes from Mother Earth from way down deep. And, and in that same sense, uh, she's healing us and she's helping us to see each other in a little different light, in a light that promotes peacemaking and bridge building and coming together as opposed to the division that the rest of the world wants to see us in. So if you've never had a chance, I'd really encourage you to go to Maple Grove Hot Springs because it sounds like a commercial right now, but, <laughs> and it's not, but uh, there's magic there. And I think uh, you'll feel it when you get there too.
This has been another episode in Ways of Water. Thank you to everyone who was interviewed for this piece. For Radioactive, I'm Connor Estes. Hoping you get to sit in a hot spring very soon. That story is part of a running series on KRCL that looks at the human water connection. It's called Ways of Water. You've been listening to the Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, Montana and New Mexico, including this one. Thanks to Chris Clemens at KSJD and Connor Estes at KRCL for today's show. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening.